There's something just hauntingly fascinating about human-like monsters, like monsters wearing, you know, a human skin as their sort of disguise. I think it's always something that will fascinate people. You know, it has fascinated people for a long time and will probably continue to do so for the foreseeable future, right? Vampires are just cool. That's Johan Valbeck, the art director at Stunlock Studios. Creators of a game that I've been spending way too much time playing this year, V Rising. This was ours. We ruled this land. We owned the night. That man rose up against us. We were overthrown. If you somehow haven't heard about or played it, V Rising is a survival action game with more than a few twists. It hit early access back in May of this year. We're going to deep dive into this game, but just to touch on what makes it feel so different than most survival games like Rust or Ark, this game has boss battles. And... You play as a friggin' vampire, yep, working your way up from frail, recently reanimated ghoul to the lord of the castle, the knight, and the brethren that haunted. You heard me. Nice. (laughs) I thought you might like that. Yes. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, this is Brian Crescenti. And I'm Tony Bernhardt Jr. And we're joining you with another episode of This is Level Infinite. While V Rising just launched this year, the game's developers, Stunlock Studios, actually got their start way back in 2009, when a group of college classmates, about 15 or so, decided to work on a project together while studying game design. What came out of that classroom collaboration was a game called Bloodline Champions, a free-to-play action title that ended up getting nominated for the Swedish Game Awards, winning two awards, including the Game of the Year. That full game hit in 2011. Way back in the day, our currently designer and our game director, and I'm sure many other people on the team, were huge fans of World of Warcraft, and they also were huge fans of PvP. This is Stunlock Studios community manager, Jeremy Fielding. So they kind of wanted to make a game that did everything that WoW Arena did for them, but in like a more condensed, more focused, more like designed specifically for that sort of game. And with that, you can really see that in Bloodline Champions. It's an arena brawler. You just pick it up and play. You don't need to like get gear or level a character for like months, you just pick it up and you do the PvP part, which is what they wanted to capture. And uh, it got like a very firm kind of cult following because there were a lot of people who wanted that too. Two years after Bloodline Champions release, publisher Deep Silver announced that Stunlock was working on a new title, Dead Island Epidemic. Now, this is one of those stories I really would love to hear more about. That game never came out, right? Yeah, that's right. And really, the whole franchise has this sort of fascinating history. Now, this is, again, talking about Dead Island. I remember when the first game, that original title, was making the rounds. And I I think this is back in, I don't know, the mid-2000s. 
and I distinctly recall checking out an early build of it at GamesCon. Now that's with an N, not an M. So this is the big German Game Expo that was being held at the time in Leipzig every year, and it predated Gamescom with an M. But it, you know, it wasn't until 11 years later, it wasn't until 2011 when the first Dead Island basically popped into the public consciousness with this amazing, stunning trailer, and it just grabbed all of this attention. That's the trailer that plays backwards, and spoiler alert, it ends with a young couple and their little girl dying. Yeah, man. Oof. It was... It was, a, it was a tough trailer to watch, especially if you have kids. It was so emotional and so evocative. And I remember when it hit, I was actually at another show. I was at GDC. I saw the trailer at like 7 in the morning, and I literally grabbed my laptop, threw it in my bag, and ran to where they were holding meetings for this game that nobody had been booking because the trailer hadn't hit yet, uh -huh. and like waited outside the office for them to open. And I was like, I want the first interview. <laughs> but none of the stuff that happened in the trailer actually made it into the game, right? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, this is an interesting digression, but the game is about, you know, a zombie apocalypse on a tropical island. Had to throw in zombies, didn't you? I love zombies. <laughs> so they have this couple in there. But what's funny is I think I'm maybe the only person who discovered this. I made a video about it. But at the very beginning of the game, you know, like all games, it sort of directs you how you're supposed to go as you kind of make your way through the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if instead of turning left and going where you're supposed to go, if you take a right and wander down this empty hallway, they actually have a little the couple like laying oh. there holding hands with each other, dead on the ground, which is like so heartbreaking. That is. <laughs> but it's such a cool little Easter egg. It is. It's amazing. So you have this franchise out there. The first game was... I think was pretty good. And, you know, it like I said, it got a lot of attention with that trailer, and then it hits. People really enjoyed it. Second game, Second Dead Island, arrives in 2013, and then a third in 2014, and then Dead Island Epidemic, which is the game that the studio had been asked to work on, is announced that winter, the winter of 2014. But it was canceled, right? Yeah, so it hits early access in 2014, but then it was canceled in 2015. And as you can imagine, the team at Stunlock can't really talk about what happened there. You know, they can't get into the nitty-gritty. But Max Tillikanen, a producer at the studio, said that the game Getting Killed actually had a huge impact on the developer. I think that impacted us on a profound level where we just felt that, you know, in general we were making something that was pretty cool, had a lot of potential, but never to get to release the thing was obviously a big disappointment, you know, working hard or something and only reaching the beta milestone is very discouraging. But at the same time, you know, looking back, it was a turning point for the studio as in, okay, that's done now, we need to focus on something new. And... From that type of mess that that created, we found Batterite. So obviously there was a lot of good things coming out of that as well. Even though when you work hard on a game project, you always hope for it to be as successful as possible. And of course you aim very high with your goals. And you know we didn't hit those marks with that project and that's always going to be a bit of a disappointment. So you also heard something pretty cool about Dead Island Epidemic at Stunlock when you were doing your fastidious research on this too, right, Brian? Yeah, you know, I love this story. So as you know, we've done a lot of these episodes, and when folks talk about sort of the game that got away, the game that was killed, they often will say how much they loved it. But I've never heard a story about a canceled game quite like this. Here's Jeremy Fielding again. 
<laughs> I can say for sure that there are people who were really disappointed that Island Epidemic didn't end up flushing out the way they wanted it to. I know there are people in the studio that really, really loved that game. In fact, I know, I'm pretty sure I could tell this story. One of our developers got, for his birthday, the rest of the team set up an in-house Dead Island Epidemic server and like put the servers back up internally just so they could all play like a little tournament because that was their favorite game. It was in connection to some type of event for sort of a kickoff evening of some kind. This is Max. But it was beautiful. <laughs> he, had a, he had a great time. And the rest of us did as well. Like I, for one, had not really played Dead Island. So I didn't quite remember the gameplay aspects of it because I, I didn't have uh, a bunch of hours into the game. And so I got to play it and get a feel for it as well. So I could have discussions about the game design with Johan after it as well, which was great. Because now I really knew about the game on, on a deeper, more profound level, especially since we played in the same team and Johan started screaming to other teams in the room how they should be playing the game <laughs> while we were trying to win the game. But we didn't. So that <laughs> we were so close to the finish line, though. And it was absolutely great because every team was so close to the finish line. So it got really heated. I loved it. It was great. It's 2015, and the team finds itself without a game. So what do they do? Like all great success stories, they return to their roots and start work on a spiritual successor to Bloodline Champions called Battle Right. That was released in 2017. They sort of looked back at Bloodline Champions, which was their first game, their first passion, and they really wanted to do it better, do it again in a new way with all the experience that they've gained and how far they've come. You know, they had worked on two projects, I think, between Bloodline Champions and Battle Right. So with all this new experience, you know, they wanted to try and tackle it again. It was something they were really passionate about. So uh, they did, and it ended up getting a pretty great reception. We rise from the ashes. We stand victorious. We will win the crowd. Battle Right did exceptionally well when it was launched, selling more than 440,000 copies in its first three months alone. Then in 2018, the studio followed up with Battle Right Royale. Once both games were launched, Stunlock Studios started exploring the possibility of making an open-world survival game. Here's Max. This is Battle Right. I think it all started with just us playing that type of experience, those types of experience, and just found it very, very interesting and fun to play together. Because, you know, at its heart, Stunlock is a company that makes great combat experience, but they're always experienced with your friends in mind, right? It's always a multiplayer experience in the heart and center. And the survival genre had a lot of that going for it. You know, it was teamwork, as in you build something together, while at the same time, you can be attacked by other players. So... Those aspects made us look a little bit deeper into this type of genre and start exploring it. It was enough for research and developing this type of gameplay experience. And as is often the case when a studio is exploring new concepts for a game, Stunlock created a variety of prototypes around the idea. We started with a lot of building and farming and stuff like that, trying to explore different ways of taking this for example, you were supposed to build the castle freely in the environment or something like that. We had 
setup place where you essentially just upgraded rooms and placed rooms as in entire entities. You didn't micromanage the walls or anything. You just put out all of these central rooms that then gave you more unlocks in terms of the crafting loop. And then you went out from this castle setup into the world to do some exploration and then run back to your castle. So the gameplay flow looked pretty different. But then we had you know, super rough prototypes in terms of just making maybe a little bit more of a harvest moon experience <laughs> where you just you, know, you have your plants, you're doing all kinds of things. But those things were very, very rough prototypes that just took us through a very chaotic creative process in the best way possible. <laughs> At this point, though, the developers weren't sure what sort of theme they wanted to layer on top of their gameplay mechanics. Then one cold, dark, gloomy, rainy day in 2019, the studio's creative director, Martin Logan, walked into the office with an idea that changed everything. I don't know about the rainy... You're missing the point. <laughs> Here's Max. Most games within the genre at the time, at least, had you know a human being as the focus area. And then you tap into survival aspects like, okay, you need to stay warm at night, you need to make a fire, you need to cook some food, you need to survive, essentially, right? That's, that's the genre. But we always found that it was not that exotic to do all of those things, while we knew at the same time that we wanted to focus on the combat system itself. And Martin walked in one day and had this idea that, what if you wake up, it's cold, you're in a cave, you don't really know what's going on, but you feel this, this deep hunger inside of you, this deep thirst. And you look around, you try to find something to eat, and you find a rat. So you grab that rat, you take a bite in it, and you start drinking its blood. And it turns out, well, hey, I'm a vampire. So that very, very short elevated pitch made a lot of sense in terms of just fueling how we could fit this top-down hack-and-slash experience with very tangible, obvious survival attributes that you get from the vampire mythology. Of course, it depends on the player that the player knows about what essentially is a vampire to see all of these tropes play out and find that intuitive. But that spawned our exploration within, you know, what if this was a vampire game and let's see where this takes us. And from there, you know, we started prototyping with that in mind. It gave us a very good focus on, okay, this is going to be a vampire experience. But what we started out with doing once that idea arrived was that we took the entire game design under the magnifying glass and took a look at it and tried to fit everything together with this, with this new formula. And it all kind of made sense. While this new theme helped to bring the future game into focus, it also raised a number of early questions. There were always a debate about how much of a survival experience it was supposed to be, right? Because 
we have this hack and slash core combat experience, and that is not necessarily immediately clear to how that is going to fit into a vampire experience. Because if you wake up as a vampire, you might be very weakened, and heading right into a bandit camp or into a village might not be the smartest move for you as a naked, hungry vampire. Maybe you should sneak around a bit more and you know really commit to the stay away and think strategically about your survival. We found that being a bit of a clash because at its core, V-Rising is a power fantasy where you go in and you engage yourself into you know, PvE hack and slash combat. Uh, and that's a very strong, fun aspect of the game and a very central part of the core experience. So it was always a debate of how much should we commit to the theme and is the theme a problem because that creates noise in terms of what the focus should be for what the player is actually doing, together with you know how much effort should we put into making this a survival experience since we're in the survival genre. So yeah, it created a focus, but at the same time, it allowed us to create creative walls and have debates within those creative walls and say, no, that's too much and that's too little. <laughs> I remember... And this is a discussion that still goes on now. Should we allow the vampire to enter houses without anyone inviting them in? <laughs> right? And looking at the game today, like there might be a moment where that's a valid idea, but no, it doesn't quite <laughs> play out like that in the game. It would be pretty strange. But it was still, you know, on the table as in, okay, what kind of hazards do we have in the environment? For example, you have garlic hazards in Dunley, so you can't, you know, just jump around freely. You need to think about, okay, uh, you need to have something that gets rid of these debuffs that will eat my soul otherwise. So, yeah, all of that was being investigated at the time on a profound level. So now, with this new theme locked down, Johan, who would become V-Rising's art director started doing work as a concept artist for the game. We did a ton of exploration in the early stages. Like I tried everything from designing characters, you know, as pixel art figures or, you know, variation-looking, attractive Castlevania-esque vampires to very realistic versions as well. So we had almost a month where we just iterated on ideas. Like we tried the same visual design when it came to costume, but tried a ton of different uh, variations on stylization. It was very hard because we were not sure of the sort of feeling or vibe. or The vampire in particular was very hard to nail down because you needed to achieve both the very early game sense of survival, sort of when you're weak, you wake up as a very weak vampire and sort of going out there and starting to cut down trees and stuff. I mean, not very much in line <laughs> with the vampire fantasy to the late game where you are this powerhouse where you actually sort of live the vampire power fantasy. So finding that look required, I did not really want to go for like a super heroic vampire. <laughs> I wanted sort of a middle ground. So I took a lot of inspiration from uh, Mike Mignola's Hellboy, for instance. Uh, he has a very interesting way of designing characters where their uniqueness or coolness are not through their physicality. They are sort of naive and very chunky looking, but what makes them really cool is sort of the gesture of the character or the 
like nuances in the way the character moves and what they do is what sells their sort of impressiveness rather than the way they look. Like me, Tony, Johan is a huge fan of horror movies. Mm. So it sounds like he already had a very deep grounding in all the forms and approaches that movies have taken to vampires. Armed with that, he started creating reference drawings for the game's final look. One of the first things I tried to do was using those references to try to answer the question, you know, who was our vampire supposed to be? Through mood boards, sort of generate, you know, something very... I don't mean this in any offensive way, but something very cheesy like Blade or something cheesy on the other side like Twilight. Or did we want something more dramatic like Underworld? Or did we want to go to something more classic like Bram Stoker's Dracula? We evaluated all those things and and had a lot of discussions about it for sure. As the game's look started to take shape, Jeremy said that other parts of the studio were figuring out how to incorporate some of the more legendary aspects of vampires, which I know you know very well, B. I know it all. I have a little box. Like the impacts of garlic, <laughs> the sun, and silver, just to name a few. I think the really kind of the inspiration for that is doing the vampire experience compared to like the normal naked dude who gets dropped into the middle of the forest experience. It is actually trying to look at everything from pretty much completely the opposite perspective. And I think that's most strongly sort of pointed in the sunlight. Normally in survival games, when it's, you know, bright out, when it's then the sun's out, that's normally when it's safe. And then when it, you know, it comes to nighttime, that's when it gets a little spooky, you can't see as far. You're more likely to get jumped by, you know, whatever like horrific polygon monster they've made. And this does the opposite. You know, the daytime, you can still hunt and stuff, but it's it's a lot tougher and, and it creates like a different level of gameplay because of that. That makes you feel very vampire-y. And the garlic and like layering in all these little things, it's to sort of ward you off and debuff you. But in the end, when you really look at the game and like who you are in this setting, you're the monster. You are the thing that they're supposed to be afraid of in instead of the person who is afraid during the day. But with the sort of reverse aspect of you are the one who's starting from scratch and needing to build up and become the thing that they fear. It's like a dark power fantasy. And there's a lot of ways to kind of go about it because there's so many different ways to be a vampire in media. But this is one way we tackle it and try to sort of slip in also those other little feelings like, you know, when you're building your castle, we actually think decoration is super important. And designing the game in such a way, like with the flooring system, that encourages you to build specific rooms for your crafting stations and stuff. In a survival PvP game, it's important to have mechanical reasons to do the things that make you make like a big opulent vampire castle and not just like a honeycomb of walls, which is a problem that we're still tackling. But the intention is obviously there. We want you to feel like a big, majestic, awesome vampire layer. And it was up to Johan's team to take those ideas and bring them to life with not just the art, but dazzling, sometimes literally, effects. When it comes to the sun, it's the natural enemy to the vampires, right? And it's my favorite moment watching anyone play the game for the first time would be the first time they actually step out into the light and realize that, oh, I'm on fire. It's fantastic. We choose to depict that as sort of a, uh, you know, orbital laser almost coming down, you know, the sun personally smacking you down. And then from the VFX point of view, we have always had a very large focus on readability. 
So we didn't just want to have you walk out into the sunlight and start to sort of smolder more in a, you know, maybe that would be more immersive, but it wouldn't be as clear a way to indicate that the sun is dangerous as to actually pointing a laser at you and making sure that the player realizes that they're in trouble, right? Ever since we did Bloodline Champions, I'm pretty sure when we blinded a player, we actually blinded the player. We took the opportunity to, you know, flash the screen, making it actually hard to see rather than, you know, having an automatic sort of misstate when you fire a projectile. Since a lot of our game is about, you know, manually controlling and aiming every single ability, affecting the player's actual eyesight is both immersive and a really good gameplay tool. And the sun effects are just simply amazing, but there's also plenty of other things in V-Rising that capture your attention. In terms of the world environment and the general mood, all of that stuff is very, very important to sort of reinforce the gothic horror fantasy that we're going for. So we choose the pretty early stage of development to go with more of a PBR or like modern sort of way of rendering lighting, like actually taking physicality of the light and how that bounces into fog, that sort of stuff into consideration because we knew that would be key aspects to sort of reinforce the horror vibe that we were going for. It caused us some problems down the line when we also wanted to have it sort of... Um, you know, a more stylized, colorful darkness vibe to the whole world, like breaking the rules of nature to achieve a certain result with that technique <laughs> causes some issues, but I, I think we managed to work around it pretty well. Another part of the game I've noticed is that some design decisions sort of push players to be a bit more careful about how they build and even decorate their foreboding castles. This is Jeremy. For instance, the flooring, the flooring needs to be contained within walls. So you can't have like one flooring mashed up against the other in the same room. It needs to be in a separate room, separated by walls and a doorway or just walls if you don't want to go inside for some reason. But when you're on that flooring, certain crafting stations, like say if you have the workshop flooring and you have like the lumber mill down, uh, your lumber mill will produce wood much faster, like very dramatically faster. So you're actually like massively encouraged to use them if you want to get your supplies quicker, and everyone does. The art team also had to come up with an approach that would allow them to deliver the fidelity and look they were hoping to capture for V-Rising. Johan attributes some of the team's success to luck. In the past, we had worked a lot on very, you know, highly stylized art styles, similar to uh, Blizzard or Riot's sort of hand-painted, high-quality singular assets and very limited scope. Like we had an arena, for instance, in Battle Right, so everything could get a lot of attention and detail. Same with the characters. We didn't have that many of them, so everything could get a lot of attention. For V Rising, one of the biggest challenges was that the scale was not something we had worked on previously. So I had to sort of start rethinking the way we did things because it was evident that we would not be able to, you know, have that level of effort put into every single aspect of the game. So that's when I started thinking about how we could make a game that looks expensive, but was more scalable in a way, like a simpler art direction that um, would still be able to like achieve a high level of quality. When I joined the project, we were thinking a lot about procedural generation 
for instance. A very stylized art style requires a lot of attention specifically to placement and like a pleasant rhythm when it comes to shapes, size relationships, that kind of thing. And that was achievable with the arenas, for instance, but working more procedurally, we had to take steps to create an art style that relied more on selling a sense of quality through details and fidelity rather than, you know, a singular asset that was very highly polished. So the approach I took was to sort of overwhelm the player with details <laughs> to create a sense of a very thoroughly you know, worked on world that would not require as much manual placement. We shifted from a more procedural thinking to a more specifically designed world, but still the amount of assets that we needed to create could not, you know, get the special care and attention when it comes to placement. So the sort of high, very high fidelity, sort of high contrast look of the world still functioned very well, you know, as a whole, just through the shared density of details. The art and game designs team had to work closely together, not just to deliver on the approach Johan was just detailing for us, but also to really stick the landing with the look and feel of the vampire. Max said that started with game design. That was one of the greatest challenges that we had, was always the debate about how weak is the vampire when you're just starting out, right? Because the power trip that you're doing is very, very radical. And if you look at the game today, that trip is very, very quick. You essentially build your first bone sword and off you go. You put out a good fight with the bandits in the surrounding area. You don't feel that you're this super weak being. You're a powerhouse from the start, so to speak. And there was a lot of debate going on about if that was the right direction to take. But ultimately, what we want to do is this power fantasy where you toy around with the humans that surround you. And we felt a bit more confidence in letting the player become that powerful or feel that powerful almost immediately by just pushing you through that initial core loop very, very quickly so that you quite soon get a castle or get palisades that gates you from the environment or the hostility of the environment. And from the perspective of Johan and his team, they really had to decide what the journey would look like and how a player's particular vampire would appear. We had discussions about that as well. Like, could you turn into different kind of vampires? Like a more Nosferatu beastia-like vampire, could that be a second form or something that you could achieve as a player? But we ended up at a point where we decided to have a character creator. So in a way, I feel like we managed to achieve a lot of different sort of vampire fantasies. Like, do you want to be the more attractive, like Alucard sort of vampire? Or do you want to be Nosferatu? We have pretty much a face for that as well. So we were not managed to achieve that in sort of, you know, actually changing the body type, but sort of in the face, you can at least sort of live your personal vampire fantasy. All right, BC, I have a serious question here. Are you a vampire? <laughs> Am I, me? Yes. I have a feeling. <laughs> I don't, the I don't menu. know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing these podcasts with a vampire this entire time, and I had no idea. There are no mirrors in my office. Yeah. <laughs> or garlic. Or garlic. Or garlic. Or garlic. Which is hard if you're Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of the biggest additions this particular survival game brings 
is the addition of what can only be described as boss battles. Yeah, so in V Rising, there is this thing called V Bloods. The idea is once you've gotten to the point where you can craft a particular table, you can bring up a menu that allows you to hunt for V-Blood characters. I just realized I'm describing something that sounds a little bit like a vampire restaurant. <laughs> yeah, that's it not does. how it, it comes really across. Does. Yes, it does. So you, it's like a menu. Uh, <laughs> a menu of, of yeah. people you can eat. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, so you bring this up in the game. It's an in-game <laughs> menu, not one that you hold in your hand. And there are these special enemies that are marked as V-Blood. And once you hunt them down and kill them, they grant you significant special abilities along with new items you can craft. And these are really tough enemies to take out, right? Yeah, you have to plan and make sure you're not going for one that's sort of over your character's level. So they... They have, like a lot of games, you level up and these enemies have levels. So if you're, for instance, a level 20 vampire, you don't want to go after one of the V-Bloods. It's like a 45 because it will completely decimate you. But once you take them down, you end up getting these abilities, depending on what you take down, that can really change the experience. So for instance, there are V-Bloods that will allow you to turn into a wolf or to a rat. You also get the ability to unleash these sort of crippling magic or summon fire. So it's a sort of big risk, even bigger reward system. And I think the most important thing is that because they've layered this into what is often when people play these sort of games an open world sort of wandering around experience, they've added this sort of journey that shapes the entire game's experience. And Max, when we were talking about this, he said that was sort of the whole point of doing this. We had a big design challenge, and that was how much freedom do we give the player? How little direction do we give the, the player to, you know, versus how much direction should we give them? And V-Bloods came in in order to address a problem, which was we couldn't really get the player to intuitively run around and discover all of these awesome points of interest that we've built around the world. It was very, very difficult for us to give the player a satisfying play journey where we encouraged the player to head into combat in order to both grind, but also get rewarded from that grind loop. Because the grind loop in itself meant you had to run back to the castle and you had to invest those types of resources and then get some kind of unlock based on how the mechanics looked back then. So what we felt that the entire journey was missing something. It was missing something that was a very key ingredient in terms of where do we take the combat loop where we unlock certain aspects of it by you engaging in combat. And V-Bloods came out of that in order to give the player focus. We started out having V-Bloods as an optional part of the game, though, and we quickly realized that it needed to be in the heart and center of the core loop, because if it wasn't, we couldn't hide critical unlocks behind it. And once we put that in a core loop, we decided that Okay, that means we need to direct the player to these V-Bloods. They cannot just be randomly found around the world based on loose exploration by the player just happen to bump into them. We need to have something that gives the player a quest direction, if you will, towards finding them in the world. Because it's also a top-down experience. So how the player perceives the map and how the player perceives the game field or the play field is radically different from 
third-person game. So we started to delve into, okay, how do we make a little bit of more guided experience in order to give the player a better journey towards the various points of interest that makes the player feel that this is a world with a lot of variation to it and it's an interesting world to explore. The problem we had was basically before that decision was made, we had a bunch of players that built the castle and they ran around in the vicinity of that castle, grinding wood, grinding stone, and then gradually found other resources. But there was no focus at the combat experience. It was just a focus on gathering resources. And that some players liked it, of course, some players didn't. But we just felt that the overall experience was way too much focused on the player just trying to figure out where to get resources from instead of looking forward to head into the next battle scenario where they get unlocks for their ability kit while that is combined with finding the resources you needed for your core crafting loop. So in action, when you select one of these V-bloods, right, as something you're hunting, it really impacts the map, which is pretty cool. And suddenly you see this sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, I guess you'd call it almost a breeze of blood floating in the direction of wherever the boss is? Yeah, right. So it sort of, uh, it comes and goes, so it's not constant. But basically you see this like a wind of like blood that just sort of starts drifting in the direction of where your enemy is. And so if you think of it as blood radar. You're, and you're okay with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, we are, you're a vampire. It's delicious. He's definitely, <laughs> definitely a vampire. <laughs> I am a vampire. <laughs> so once you do this, you have to sort of follow this around. You eventually will end up finding the enemy. You hunt him down. As you're doing this, you don't really know how far away they are or how close they are. You just know what direction. And then, you know, it's sort of having that there changes the entire experience because now you're sort of building your character up to the point where you know they can take this V-blood out, but then you're spending a huge amount of time traversing the map coming across all kinds of other encounters just so you can get this V-blood and unlock this ability. And I think for me and, you know, for the game designers, they felt like it would change the way people play the game. And so when they rolled this out into the game, Max said that that change actually was immediate. It, it like immediately influenced players. The impact that they gave us was massive in terms of finding the focus for the core loop and also being able to commit to whatever content we needed created to make sure that that loop stayed intact was extremely groundbreaking for the production. And V-Bloods was actually an idea that came in pretty late in the production of the game. You know, when you play it together, it's in the heart and center of the entire experience. You can't imagine, you know, V-Rising without it. But it was the last thing that we added throughout production in order to make this fly even better. So yeah, it's actually a very new thing in terms of what we were developing at the time. Jeremy calls adding the blood altar and V-Bloods a profound change. Even after the V-Bloods were added, it was kind of found that players still kind of didn't know what to do and going out to find them was difficult. And that's something that was sort of hard to test internally. And when we saw how players actually reacted to it, the idea of adding the blood altar, I think, was totally revolutionary because it, it both gives the players the freedom to choose what they want to hunt makes the hunting sort of central to your character progression even more, which I think is really important for that vampire feel, but also like doesn't tell you what to do. It's not like a journal entry, which is another way we could have gone. We could have just made hunting each V-Blood like an additional journal entry, 
But giving it in this way that sort of gives the players freedom to choose what they want, I think, feels much better in this genre of game. Another neat tweak to the survival formula is your castle's thirst for blood. That's right. Your castle is also thirsty for blood. Excuse me? Uh, it's great. So as a vampire, you need to keep yourself topped off on blood, either by draining animals or human enemies. Doing so can actually kind of give you this temporary benefit based on what you drink. So for instance, if you drain a, a warrior, you get some of their attributes for a little bit. And the thing that I really like about this game is that they've decided that your castle also runs on blood. And so you have to feed it basically hearts. And if you don't keep it fed, it will eventually start to decay, costing you all the stuff you built. It sort of falls apart. Uh, Max said that deciding how long a player could stay away from the castle or asleep in their casket, logged off from the game, was really a big balancing act for the team. The idea spawned from us just trying out different ways of building the castle in the world. So essentially, we started out with having what we call castle slots, which meant this is an allocated spot for your castle. You build it, you walk over there, and you summon your castle, essentially. And then you start building your castle on that plot of land that was summoned. And the various mechanics that you need to cater to over there versus you know playing more freely around the world and essentially allowing players to build in such a way that they will impact each other's building. So all of a sudden, you need to have deterioration on the castle. Otherwise, things will just get occupied for all eternity. You know, where do we put down the right balancing amount? You know, how long should the player go without having to play the game and still come back to their castle being intact, etc.? We were very aware that that was part of the experience. We wanted to find a good balance where we felt that the experience should survive that. But we also knew that some players will absolutely hate this and some players will not hate it, but maybe not love it either. So that's why we give you options. That's why we give you settings so that you can configure this the way you want for your server or your single player experience if you're not into the multiplayer part of the world. So you can scale this to your own lightning. But that said, you know, we knew that the core experience was going to involve your castle decaying and over time disappear. Tortured by thirst, choking down dust, starving. Until now, our hunt begins again. That's probably an important thing worth mentioning here about V-Rising. It's a game that can be played as a single player, but it also supports hosting or joining servers where, as Max just mentioned, the host can tweak all kinds of rules, like degradation time, for instance. Correct, I was actually playing on a hosted server for a while, but decided uh, recently to try a single player version of the game where I just set up my own server to see if it would be easier to build up my massive castle. And it turns out it is not easier to build up my massive, <laughs> massive castle. <laughs> Good to know. Yes. Yeah. So is it weird playing a vampire in a game as a real vampire? <laughs> I knew you, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> just... Just curious. It was listen, listen. You know, just because I've been telling people for a year now that vampires are cool and zombies aren't, yeah, yeah, <laughs> doesn't make yeah, me a vampire. Or yeah, anything. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so V Rising hit early access in May, and get this, sold one million copies in its first week. Yes, uh, most of them to vampires, of course. Yes. 
Yes. And by June, it was up to 2.5 million. Wow. As you might expect, the team is ecstatic, especially given the game is still in early release. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, people are still taking interest in our game, and I think they'll continue to as uh, we continue to come out with uh, updates. Right now, we did our Halloween event, because, like, how could we possibly resist? It's Halloween. We're a dark fantasy game. Like, how can you stop yourself? But uh, we have a larger, uh, a much larger content update planned for next year. And we hope as we continue to update the game and bring it closer to our vision, we'll continue to bring in more people who also like our cool little vampire game. <laughs> it's been quite the ride. In a lot of ways, it's beyond my wildest expectations. This is Johan. I've worked on a lot of different games and products. I don't know. It took me by surprise. I guess I did not realize the power of sort of the open world survival genre because it's not really my kind of game. It's not the games I usually play. I've always really liked the idea of them, but on a personal level, and this is not a dig towards any other games out there, I just felt like it was a sort of formula that felt a little undercooked to me. None of the products that I've played so far has felt complete. It's really interesting games and really interesting ideas in the games, but I am a player that is driven... I need a focus, I need a goal, like a proper goal to work towards. And I guess we sort of innovated a little bit <laughs> on that sort of stuff in, in uh, V-Rising. With sort of having the hunt for V-Bloods, that sort of stuff, always gave me a goal, like what's the next thing I need to do? In a lot of these kind of games, it's more like intrinsically driven or what you're driven to as a player to explore. Like, I want to build this because I want to craft this. But to me, that has never felt really rewarding. So I appreciate the sort of more game-focused progression that V-Rising has. Johan said that the team is focused right now on nailing down the final elements of V-Rising's eventual full release. Most of it is locked down, but there is still room for polish. There are aspects of the game that I still want to work on, for sure. I would also, like on a more personal level, <laughs> want to achieve slightly more of a stylized look to a few things. Like my personal crusade is to get a very particular sort of rim light going, both to help with gameplay uh, readability when it comes to some of the enemies that sort of blend into the background a little bit. But also, I think it would be very fitting for the sort of gothic horror cinematography to have a really dramatic sort of rim light on the characters to reinforce their silhouettes. I mean, the world itself is like a main character of our game. So each area that we create gets special attention and, and are treated pretty much like a character. It takes up a lot of development time, but also a lot of world building and thinking about the cultures to sort of, and how to depict them in the most effective way possible. You know, keeping a grounded look to the world, like a cohesiveness of the world, but also making sure that they stand out as clearly different biomes in terms of their color gradation or the, um, the architecture itself, the outfits of the people living there. So everything sort of starts with the world in a way. Jeremy said that the process of rolling the game out has also included an element of educating players. The start of it is people actually kind of figuring out what the game is. And I think that kind of was a very community-centric journey of people kind of over time, you know, you get there and what your first impression of what you think the game is going to be. I'm in marketing, so obviously we're trying to communicate as best as we can 
what the game experience is going to be before they get there. Because the last thing you want is to show up and get something that you weren't expecting in a bad way. So it was very much our goal to communicate that. But you know what? You're not perfect. You're, uh, a lot of people are going to come in expecting it to be an MMO or expecting it to be uh, another survival experience that's more like Rust or more like whatever game they're used to in the survival genre. And I think uh, I don't think it's too cocky to say that we are a very unique game. We're not exactly like Rust, and we're not exactly like Don't Starve, and we're not exactly like Valheim, and we're not exactly like any kind of MMO. So it took people some time to kind of adjust to what to expect from us. And as the sort of word of mouth of that grew, you know, the community kind of evolved with it and sort of learned what to expect from us and learned what to expect from the game. It's been very interesting, especially in terms of servers and server settings, like private servers. Originally, a lot of the focus was on single-player experience or small groups experience on their private servers or our public servers, which have always been by far in the minority. I think it's at a scale of at least like one public server that we run to every 32 private servers that are run. At least that's what the number was uh, back in May. The evolution of like people adding mods to the game and people uh, trying out new game sort of modes, like making their own game modes and playing in their own unique ways or making role play servers. The community has kind of come a really long way in a direction that I expected and am just like super delighted to see play out. Now, Brian, I know this is right in your wheelhouse as not only an avid gamer and true fanatic of horror movies, Vampire, you must have some thoughts about this. Uh, yeah, of course I do, uh, because I, I want my people to be... Re- no. <laughs> <laughs> <Say that. laughs> yes, You must uh, have some thoughts about the game. Yes, of course I do. I, I love this game, and they've done such a great job of creating a title centered on an antihero that is the thing in the dark that normies are afraid of, the thing that can tear apart a troop of soldiers or, or silently slip into a camp and drain a single unsuspecting victim. Victim. But for me, what was way more interesting were all of the neat ideas Johan has about this sort of this space in gaming. This this space? Like, you know, like the horror horror game space. I mean, we've seen gotcha. plenty of like zombie games and, and now there are a lot of vampire games hitting. But what about all the other things that go bump in the night? Obviously, Stunlock and Johan are completely focused on polishing V Rising. But that didn't stop Johan from going on a little game design flight of fantasy with me, especially when I asked him about werewolves. Ooh. Oh, yeah, hell yeah. I mean, how cool would it be to actually start as a human, like in one of these towns? And then, you know, you could join the bandits or you could, maybe you start as an outcast. And then you would have to progress, like, you know, earn the trust of the bandits you know, progress through Dunley, maybe join the militia, maybe there you get bitten by a werewolf and get turned into that. And, you know, maybe you get bitten by a vampire or taken in as a servant, and then, you know, you could progress that way. That, of course, is, you know, dreaming super, super big. And that is not, you know, (laughs) something that's probably in the cards, but uh, the idea has struck me for sure. Do you feel like down the line, this is, you know, maybe not in this type of game, but do you feel like you all as a studio are going to explore more sort of supernatural titles in the future? Like, is this something that's whet your appetite? It's whet my appetite for sure. It, it, it depends, like, as a project that I would be passionate about for sure. It is always hard, though, because like a, a sort of gothic horror fantasy 
is very cool and a very strong theme to work with, but somewhat limited in the things you can do. There are some things that are fitting, you know, within the gothic horror genre and some things that are not. So in some ways it's limiting, but in those same ways it's very inspiring. So I'm not sure. Every project that we take on will pretty much start from scratch as here where the game leads us. It usually doesn't start with the idea about art or a genre specifically, but rather we're discussing games as a whole and what we want to achieve and do. This is Level Infinite is a production of Pad and Pixel LLC. Your hosts are Tony Bernhardt Jr. and myself, Brian Crescenti. This podcast is produced and edited by Brian Crescenti, Dave Tack, and Ethan Vincent. Audio engineering and final mastering by Dan Carlisle.